Hi everybody, nice to see you. If you don't know me, I'm Philip and I'm one of the pastors and we teach from the Bible every week and that's what I'm going to do in our... I'm a child of the 90s and the Radio 1 Live Lounge was a thing when you were a teenager in the 90s. This feels like King's Church version of the Radio 1 Live Lounge, intimate gig. Um, Just before I do that, let me just throw one more thing at you in terms of dates and your planning and things. One of the highlights of my year at King's Church these days is the week of prayer and fasting that we have at the beginning of each year. It's a wonderful way to kind of set the year, to kind of set our hearts on God and we're going to do that again in 2018. So we'll start on 7th of January, which is the Sunday in here, and we'll go throughout that week. And we always have daily podcasts each day to help us kind of engage with God and explore prayer and maybe add fasting to that. Prayer and fasting is a thing which is you know, Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. It's not a new idea. We're stepping into an amazing, uh, if you like, tradition that the, the Christian church has had. And I, I love it every year. It just kind of centers me at the beginning of the year. It's a great way my marriage goes goes better, goes deeper when we pray and fast together. It's a wonderful thing to do. So I would just pat that in the back of your mind as you gorge over Christmas. Not that fasting is a way of losing weight, but just have a have your mind on kind of what's to come at the beginning of the new year and think about, actually, Sunday the 7th, that week, how can I engage in prayer and maybe even fasting as well? And I promise you, you'll encounter God in special ways when you do so. I don't fully understand the wonder and the mystery of fasting. I just know that I encounter God in a special, unique way, and I end up loving him more and being more grateful for him at the end. So why don't you join us in doing that from Sunday the seventh. So we are in the third and final part of a little series called The Promise, which is a series on Advent to help us approach Christmas, uh, which I've really enjoyed. I hope you have as well. Peter really helped us. I, I started off three weeks ago, I think. We looked at the, the promise that was uh, in place right at the beginning of the story of, of creation, the story of the Bible, with God saying, I'm going to do something one day to bring about a reversal, a transformation in the brokenness of humanity. And Peter said there's a promise of peace available, which Christmas also brings us. And I'm now having kind of spent a while in the build-up to the Christmas, looking at the promise aspect, I'm going to look at a famous nativity scene that you will be familiar to all of us, I think. So it's Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, and now we land in the actual Christmas moment. So if you felt like, oh, I had two weeks of promise, 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 now this is the the fulfillment of the promise, if you like, and one of those wonderful passages that I think we all love at Christmas. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, the story of the, the three wise men. So if you have your Bibles, you can read along with me, or you can read along on the screen behind me. This is how it goes. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. I'm actually reading from the NIV, and you've got the ESV, so I'll go back to the ESV so there's no funny things going on. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it's written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They're quoting Micah 5, and part of the scriptures to Herod. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, 
excuse me, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening the treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I call my son. Probably a passage that's familiar to many of us, and even if you're not, if you're new to church, you've probably heard this story or at least something of it before. It's one of those ones that kind of echoes down through the centuries, the wise men and the gifts, and their so on and so on. It's packed full, I would say. Even if you are familiar with it, if we really understand, it's packed full of what's unusual. It is a very, very unlikely scene to develop. I don't know how unlikely your Christmas is about to be. I guess you don't know by definition. Um, I was looking this this week at the uh, the most unlikely gifts that are due to be given this Christmas. So if you're yet to buy, little show of hands, if you have bought all your gifts already, who's, who's done that already? Okay, we're a semi-organized church. If you've bought none already, wow, okay. Well, I've got some help for you because there are as a list of unusual gifts. The Telegraph online published the top 30 most unusual, unlikely gifts uh, to give somebody this Christmas. Um, <laughs> at number six... In the top 30, if you wanted to give a very unlikely, unusual present, you could give somebody the beautiful poetry of Donald Trump. <laughs> a collection of his best tweets and transcripts reordered into poetry. That would be an unlikely present to give, I would imagine. The mind boggles. At number seven, you could give spreadable coffee espresso marmalade. An unlikely present to give, I would imagine. And at number one, the most unusual, unlikely present to receive or to give this Christmas would be chocolate Brussels sprouts. They are available, apparently. So those of you who are still uh, searching for gifts, there are some ideas for you for unlikely presents. This is an unlikely scene. And what I want just to briefly, I think this morning, I'm not going to go very long, is just to unpack just how unlikely, just how unusual this Christmas scene with these wise men that we're so familiar with probably actually is. And just as I was kind of praying about this and asking God, what does he want to say to us this morning? I felt him saying something on the lines of, how open are you to the unlikely or to the unusual or to the surprising this Christmas? Because I don't know how organized you are. Some of you have got your gifts already. Some of you haven't got anything at all. So we're probably all somewhere on that spectrum. But most of us will know where we're going to go for Christmas, who's going to be there probably, what gifts we probably will give. You might even have got your own Amazon gift wish list. You know what gifts you're going to receive even, in the case of my wife. We can have Christmas fairly well organized. We know what we're doing and who's coming and how much holiday we're going to take when we're going back to work and so forth. And from a, a faith perspective, we can feel like, I kind of know what Christmas means. I've, I've, every year we explore it carefully. I know what Christmas means. I know what it's about. I know. It's Anna played. It's Emmanuel, God with us, making himself known to us through Jesus. But this passage, I think, is teaching us that Christmas actually is all about the unlikely. It's all about the unusual. It's all about the surprising. And I wonder whether, how open are we, me and you, to God at being at work in the unlikely in the unusual this Christmas. And two particular things I want to just mention. Unlikely settings and unlikely people. 
How open are we to God being at work in unlikely settings and unlikely people? Because this passage teaches us that that's what God is like. He loves to be at work in unlikely settings and unlikely people. Number one, unlikely settings. I just reordered my notes around the last few minutes, so forgive me if I'm jumping around a little bit. But you'll notice that the setting, uh, the setting for this first Christmas is Bethlehem. So uh, Herod is, as you probably know the story, Herod is not the innocent king that he plays a part of. He's a, you know, history tells us probably one of the most barbaric, abhorrent leaders there's ever been. So what he's about to do to uh, baby Jesus if he gets his hand on him is nothing really in comparison to some of the other things that he tried to do. Um, But we're told that Bethlehem is the setting for this Christmas. And we'd see that in, in, uh, in verses 6, when as Herod inquires seemingly innocently of the wise men, so where is this Jesus, this new king figure going to be born? They quote to him a passage from the scriptures, Micah chapter 5. They say, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, and who will shepherd my people Israel. And they're quoting, as I say, Matthew chapter five. Uh, sorry, Micah chapter five, which actually says uh, it's a, a slight paraphrase. Micah chapter five says specifically, "And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler." They actually say, "Who are?" T- it says, "Bethlehem, who is too little to be among the clans of Judah," is the actual um, uh, quote from Micah. And we all know the carol. O little town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a very insignificant, small, unlikely setting for God to interrupt and change the course of history. We sing it every year, O little town of Bethlehem. I had loads of sort of little facts I was going to give you about how unlikely Bethlehem was as a setting, but I'll sum it up like this. One commentator simply says, Bethlehem was an insignificant little town, despised by many, overlooked by others. And yet God chooses that as the setting for him to enter into the story of humanity to begin to restore it and make it whole. And if you look through the story of the Bible, God constantly chooses quite unlikely settings to make his appearance. Like Abraham is a, an Iraqi pagan, a, a nomad, and suddenly God comes into his story into a very unlikely setting. Gideon is a, a coward just hiding in a wine press, and God comes into that setting. Esther's a young woman who finds herself in a, effectively in a harem, And somehow God comes into that setting and begins to work out his purposes. God loves to come into unlikely settings, and Bethlehem was an unlikely setting. Just to put it into context, the other day I was... It was after the first couple of weeks of paternity leave, and I, and I just made my, um, I dropped off Caroline Izzy a little appointment, had an hour or so, and I thought, I'm just going to get into my Bible this morning because I have that much time these last couple of weeks. So I went to a, uh, a, a, a chain of coffee store that I won't name, um, somewhere in, in Tolworth. And I had about an hour just to my Bible and my journal and a coffee. And I was really cramped. There were some people quite next to me. I had not much space. There was another baby next to me who was making a bit of a racket. I won't name the coffee store because the coffee I drank was pretty ordinary. It was quite lukewarm. wasn't very nice. It was quite an unlikely setting to encounter God. It was noisy. It was cramped. The coffee was rubbish. I was really tired. And yet, as I did my little soap, which I often mention to you, I just opened my Bible, get my journal, scripture, what do I, O for observation, A for application, P for prayer. Just scribbling down what I see in the scripture, how I'm going to apply it, and what God's asking me to pray in response. I really felt I met with him. I really felt I encountered what he was saying. I was scribbling away loads and loads of things based from just one verse in the Bible in a very unlikely setting. 
And I wonder, in your Christmas this year, whatever you think it is going to be, whatever it turns out to be, what unlikely settings are you open to encountering God in? Because we can have Christmas so nicely kind of boxed up, can't we? What unlikely setting might God make himself known to you this Christmas? And the second thing I wanted to point out is unlikely people. So Bethlehem's an unlikely setting, but the unlikely people that God makes himself known to in this scene at Christmas. And we could mention the shepherds. They are very unlikely people for God to make himself known to in such an extraordinary way. They're not the cute figures of nativity plays with their nice, clean tea towels and things. Shepherds in Jesus' day were considered to be kind of brigands and thieves, not in any way to be admired, let alone to be drawn into the kind of key moments of of history. In Jesus' day, shepherds were considered to be so untrustworthy, they weren't allowed to give the testimony in the court of law. They were considered to be so unclean, they weren't permitted to be in in the temple courts. And yet God chooses them to make this incredible appearance to, and he chooses them to come and witness the birth of Jesus. But obviously it's the wise men that we see in this particular passage, or the magi, three wise men, the magi with their gifts, which always reminds me of probably my favorite nativity story in the world. I'm sure we've all of us have either been in primary school nativity plays, been parents who've got children in primary school nativity plays, or even been teachers who have helped perform primary school nativity plays. But my favorite primary school nativity play, which involves the wise men, goes like this, and I'm sure this, I'm sure the story is true. Uh, it's got to, it's a kind of traditional nativity play, uh, and it's it's reached the scene that we've just read, the three wise men about to do their thing, and three little boys play the part of three wise men, and the first little boy comes onto the stage and dutifully makes his way to the, to the manger where baby Jesus is and says, delivers his line very solemnly and says, I bring you gold, and off he, off he marches. Second little wise man, second little boy comes onto the stage, makes his way to the baby Jesus in the manger and says very solemnly, I bring you myrrh. A third little boy plays the part of the white third wise man, comes onto the stage, makes his way very carefully to the baby Jesus in the manger and pauses and says, um, Frank sent this? <laughs> I'm assured it's true and it's my favourite story and I look for its excuse any Christmas to try and tell what I'm assured is a genuinely true nativity story. But... Who are these wise men? Who are these magi that we've heard about in this passage probably every Christmas uh, for a long time? Well, it seems there were probably there were lots of them. It seemed probably more than three. Probably were a number of them. Um, they were magi, as the uh, other translation I started reading said, which means they were kind of astrologers or philosophers from the east, probably. Maybe from somewhere near modern-day Baghdad, probably somewhere in modern-day Iraq. We think they may have been from. Babylon seems to be the indication. The point is they were foreigners. They were not Jews. They were outsiders at the time. Uh, You see, up to a point, obviously, all the way through the story of the Bible, God's plans have been centered around the Jewish people. That's how we see throughout the Old Testament. God's promises and plans have always been centered on the Jewish nation thus far. And indeed, the Jewish nation has been promised a ruler, a savior, a king, a messiah is going to come from within them and indeed for them to rescue and and save them. That's their their national identity they've been holding on to. And suddenly, these foreigners enter the scene. Now, we could be quite impressed maybe by their education, which is probably considerable, by their wealth, which is probably also considerable, but that wouldn't have been very impressive at the time. Like the shepherds, they would have been considered unclean, spiritually unclean, not to be mixed with. The arts they practiced were actually expressly forbidden in the Jewish scriptures. They were amongst the last people, 
actually, that you would expect to have been invited to worship at and witness the fulfillment of God's promise at Christmas. They just weren't supposed to be there. We look back very fondly and say, of course, the three wise men. Nobody expected three Iraqi foreigners who practiced arts that were forbidden in the Jewish scriptures to be invited to be present at this incredible moment in history. And not only were they unlikely to be there, they were invited to be there. We could get into a whole conversation about the star and how does that work and how, does, how do you follow a star. But I guess two things that I've just been mulling over about the whole star thing this week. One is that the bigger conversation to have is who's behind the origins of the universe. And at the moment, everyone seems to agree that there is a beginning to the universe. So every scientist, including people like Stephen Hawking, say the universe began. It came from nothing at some point. So the idea is, well, what, what was behind that? Was it simply a, a set of chance circumstances that happened to come together to cause, if you like, a, a virgin birth, a momentary explosion from the primeval soup of the right conditions at the right time to cause life? Or was there a designing force, a designing God behind it? My point is, if God is the designing force behind the beginning of the universe, then he's quite able to manipulate around one star within that universe. And the second thing that's been, I think, quite moved me this week is, what were those men passionate about? What were they giving their life to? What were they interested in? Astronomy, looking at the stars and the cosmos and trying to work it out and how it works. These guys were learned people, we think, who'd given their lives to trying to understand the stars and the planets and the, the cosmos. So how does God choose to speak to them? How does he choose to draw them to Jesus? How does he choose to help them begin to encounter the person in the presence of Jesus? Through a star, through the thing they're interested in. Isn't that amazing about God? That he says, I, I know how I made you. I know what you're interested in, what you're passionate about in. So I'm, I'm going to use that thing that you're interested in to help you begin to come on a journey to encounter the person of Jesus. That really helps me pray for my friends. My friend, I think, what are they passionate about? What are they interested in? The, loads of, the nature of common grace means that our friends are passionate about things that God's passionate about. Not always, but sometimes. And God often will use things that we have already got a passion for to begin to show him, I'm the thing, I'm the one behind the passion that you have. Helps me pray. I hope it helps you pray for our friends at Christmas, for unlikely people, you might think. So the point is, God invites they don't just stumble there by chance. They're not unlikely only in that sense. They're invited to be there, which um, reminds me of a story that I heard last year of a young woman called, called Shonza. True story. She, in 2009, she was an 18-year-old girl. She had her life completely turned upside down because she had a stroke. And suddenly, very unusual for, I think, a woman of that age. She had a stroke and all of the problems that followed. And to cut a long story short, her life kind of unraveled and she found herself homeless, uh, kind of sofa surfing fairly, fairly shortly. She came across a local charity, a homeless charity that really helped her to get back on her feet. And such was the help that she received and the way that she was able to kind of get a hold of that help that by 2011, her life was back on track. And so the homeless charity in question invited her to um, a, a charity fundraising event and asked her to speak to kind of testify as to the results of what their work had done in her life. And so she gave a kind of just a short speech to thank them and to explain how they'd helped her get her life back on track after the experience of being ill and homeless. What she didn't know before she arrived at the event was that Prince William was a, or I think he still is, the, the patron of that particular charity. And he was present at the event. And afterwards, uh, to her amazement, he came up to her and approached her and, and, and thanked her and encouraged her and, and just generally was very encouraging and endorsing, which is an amazing experience in itself. Anyway, few, I think a few weeks later, maybe a few days later, she had a letter through the post. And she noticed pretty quickly that on the front of the letter there was a royal stamp. 
And she opened this letter, and to her amazement, there was a handwritten note from Prince William, again, thanking her for her speech, encouraging her that her life was going in a fantastic direction, and a personal invitation to his wedding later on that year in 2011. And so later in 2011, um, this young woman called Shonza, who had arranged, as my wife had done, to be on the streets of London to celebrate the royal wedding and to kind of be around it and to enjoy it, she found herself in, was it Westminster Abbey, I think? She found herself in Westminster Abbey with her own seat there at the wedding of the future king because she was invited to be there. Which is an amazing story, and it just reminds me of the beauty and the wonder of what God does at Christmas. He invites the unlikeliest of people to be present at this most incredible event, the birth of the future king. God loves to do that. He loves to invite unlikely people into the heart of what he's doing. And so I guess that just reminded me of the nature of of what God is like. That all of us, if we're a Christian, it's because we've been invited to explore and encounter God and to become one. If we're not yet to be a Christian, that's look at who God, what God's like. He doesn't, he doesn't make a beeline for those with all the right credentials, all the, all the religious things in place. He goes to the wise men who were considered to be pagans. They had no religious credentials to offer at all. They had nothing to bring to the table, it, it really, and yet he invites them to do so. God goes after those who feel they might not belong, those with their religious credentials, those who look different, act different, God goes after them, he invites them, he draws them to the person of Jesus. Which I think, just as I'm beginning to think about closing, we're gonna worship again, has lots of implications for us um, as a church. I think the first implication is we want to be a community where anyone can, and can belong as they explore the claims of the Christian faith. As you ask, as you challenge, as you wonder, as you doubt, you can belong to this community because we know that's what God's like. He draws unlikely people to begin to explore and ask. And we want to be a community like that, who have a deep, profound love for God, love for each other, deepening uh, experience of the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of who God is. And at the same time, our community is one where others can belong to whilst they ask and challenge and doubt and express skepticism as people need to do. And I think we're on the journey to becoming to doing that, but something that I feel passionately about is can we, as it were, get the sweet spot of the Venn diagram, that little, that little bit in the middle which has all the, the perfect ingredients into it. The sweet spot would be a community with a deep, profound love for God, a growing spirituality, a passion for the name and the glory of God and the, the loving of our brothers and sisters, and a community at the same time which is accessible to those who are miles away from understanding that. We might even disagree significantly with it. That's the sweet spot I want us to aim for. The second if you like, uh, implication that I think this story has for us is that we have an opportunity to be the most humble and secure people in Kingston. We could be the most humble and secure people in Kingston because that's what the gospel does. I think you see the gospel in this story. It leaves us, when we explore it afresh again and again, it should leave us deeply humble and deeply secure. You see, the wise men were unlikely people to come to the birth of Jesus. But the nature of a Christian is an unlikely person. If you are a Christian, you are an unlikely person to be in the family of God. Even if you became a Christian as a child or a teenager and you never know anything else, it's easy to kind of forget just how unlikely it is for anyone to come to saving faith in the person of Jesus Christ and be a Christian. 
We did nothing to merit God's favor and grace. He's the one that invites. He's the one that uses grace in all kinds of ways. Whether he put you in a Christian family and you met with the person of Jesus as a young child, that is his grace. That's his invitational grace. Whether you have a dramatic story of coming to faith from a life of brokenness and mess or anything in between, it's always unlikely that anyone would say, actually, God, you are God. I'm not. I'm not going to elevate myself above you or above other people, and I'm going to come to you. That's an unlikely story. But my experience as a Christian, we can sometimes, if we haven't had the dramatic story of brokenness and mess and so on, we can sometimes think, well, it, it just kind of happened. And we can either think that God just allowed us to kind of sneak in without really realizing, or we can think subconsciously, I, I probably brought some stuff to the table that means it's quite logical that God brought me on his team. I have some you know, some skills, some, some morality, I haven't done much wrong, so it's not that surprising, is it, that God would want me on his team. It's always a shock that God would go to such lengths to seek us out, to invite us into his family. So when we apply the gospel afresh, we left, we, all of us should be left saying, I am an unlikely person to be a Christian. It is very unlikely that I should be a Christian. I think of my own proclivity to elevate myself above God and above other people. It is very unlikely that I should reach a place where I want God to be above me and, and, and all the implications of that. The gospel should make us deeply humble people. We're all unlikely people. The gospel tells us that our sin was deeply, deeply problematic. The gospel tells me, God, you know everything about me. Everything about me, not just the things I like to present, or my, my kind of public credentials for social media. You know everything about me, including the things that I'd be appalled if anybody else knew. And that is so serious that Jesus had to die for it. This little baby went on a journey to experience all of the brokenness of humanity right up to the cross in order that I might come to relationship with God. That's how serious my own personal darkness was. That humbles me. Gospel leaves no room for pride at all. And at the same time, the gospel can make us the most secure people in Kingston. Because not only does the gospel tell us that my sin was so serious that the God himself had to die for it, it tells me God himself was willing to die for it. So how much must he love me? If he saw me with all of my personal private darkness that nobody else gets to see, and he said, I still want him in my family, I'm still going to invite him personally, that tells me I am loved to the skies. It makes me the most secure person, or it can do if I keep applying it to myself. When you apply the gospel over and over again, it humbles you to your bootstraps and it affirms you to the skies. And it could make us the most humble and secure people in Kingston. Now, if you just imagine right now, who is the most humble and secure person you know? Bring, bring someone to mind. Aren't they good to be around? Aren't humble, secure people great to have around? They're at ease with their own frailties and weaknesses, but not casual about them. They're also at ease with their own strengths and gifts, what they have to bring to the table. They're not crushed by criticism. They're not inflated by flattery. They're poised, they're calm, they're focused. Humble, secure people are great to have around. And the gospel, when you apply it afresh, I think always humbles us and makes us more and more secure. And the third implication from this story that I think it teaches us is what I started off by saying. How open are we to unlikeliness this Christmas? You might consider yourself to be an unlikely person for God to work through this Christmas. That's what he does. He always chooses unlikely people. There's a verse about it. I can't remember it. 
He always chooses unlikely people to work through. Also, there may be unlikely people in your life this Christmas, and you think, if you're honest, there's no way they're ever going to explore faith. There's, there's no way they're ever going to begin to ask the right question. Is it just me? Have you got people in your life who think, that's what God does. He loves to get after the most unlikely people. The shepherds and the wise men were the most unlikely people, and God goes after them. So are we open to God either working in us as an unlikely person and meeting with us, maybe for the first time, and are we, are, are we open to God working through us to draw unlikely people to begin to explore and encounter him? Now, interesting, the wise men, did you notice this? Their response to Jesus, if you like things buttoned up and organized and strategic like me, is really annoying. Because <coughs> they come in, they meet God himself in, in human flesh. It says they fall down and worship. Wow. That's the nature of meeting with Jesus and encounter Jesus brings worship. They give gifts. They're generous, like Anna says. They, they, something about seeing Jesus prompts generosity, which happens, I think, in the life of a believer. And then they leave. <laughs> and we never hear of them again. So I want the verse to say, and the Magi decided to stay around, and they wanted to wait till Jesus grew up. When Jesus grew up, they began to be disciples of his, and they were there at the last moment when he was on the cross, and they were there after the resurrection, and they became the founders of the local church. Didn't say that. They just left. And I don't know what they did with that. What did they do? Who knows? God knows. But people have all kinds of experiences and moments on their journey towards faith. Sometimes they respond with incredible, wow, God, this, if, if you're real, you're like this, I worship you. And then they leave. And then they come back. My point is, don't be surprised if the unlikely people in your lives do unlikely things as they begin to explore and encounter Jesus. Our, our job, if you like, is just to be, I know this is a bit cheesy, and I wasn't going to say it, but our job is just to be a bit like stars. Shining star and all that stuff. But that's kind of what the job of a, or the privilege of a Christian is to be, is to say, I'm a, you know what I'm trying to say. God used the star to bring those very unlikely people to the person of Jesus Christ. And they saw something in Jesus that made them worship, that made them give, and then they left. And who knows where their journey took them, and that's for God to worry about and not us. But this Christmas, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, are you open to being a star? <laughs> in order that the people that you think they are so unlikely to meet with God and explore and encounter him might do just that. I'm just going to close by just reminding us that not only is Christmas an unlikely story, the whole of the whole the whole gospel the gospel is the accomplished work of Jesus Christ, but it begins at Christmas. The whole person of Jesus is unlikely. Um, Mike uh, Thorne read this poem out at a prayer meeting of the day, which kind of stuck with me. Um, I wonder whether Paul and the band could come up and start to help us worship again. I hope this poem will help us worship. And it just taps into just how unlikely Jesus was prepared to be, just how anonymous, just how humble, just how broken and fragile. The whole story of God being born as a baby and then being broken in some different ways is so unlikely. And if you go away with nothing else this morning, go away with the, the deep sense of the whole of the gospel, the whole of me even being a Christian, is such an unlikely story. And therefore, 
in some kind of strange way, it would be no surprise if unlikely things happen this Christmas in unlikely settings with and through unlikely people because this is what Jesus is like. This is the, the poem. It says this, he, Jesus, was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in still another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held office. He never had a family, never owned a house, didn't go to college, never visited a big city, never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of those things that one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves while he was dying. Executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had left on earth. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. It's a very unlikely story. And yet the poem finishes like this. 20 centuries have come and gone. And today, he is the central figure of the human race. And the leader of mankind's progress. I've done this for a while. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliament that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together have not affected the life of man on earth as much as that one solitary life. Why don't we stand and worship this amazing Jesus? And if nothing else, let's open our hearts to what he might do this Christmas in unlikely settings, in unlikely people. You might be the person who's unlikely, and you might also be the person through whom other unlikely people get to meet with this incredible history-changing Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that all the ways that I would imagine God coming to earth are opposite to how you chose to do it. He chose to do it in such unlikely, humble, strange circumstances. Jesus, you seem to embrace anonymity and obscurity and, and uh, false impressions and mockery and misunderstandings. And, and yet you transform the course of history. History pivots, Jesus, on you being born at Christmas and dying at rising on Easter. And you have spent 2,000 years making yourself known to the most unlikely of people of whom we count ourselves amongst that number. And you delight, God, we believe, so much in doing unlikely things with unlikely people in order they might come to meet you and have their lives transformed. And so we say, if we're ready, we say, God, we're available to you this Christmas. And I ask you for stories of the new year, of you being at work amongst us as a community, and you being at work through us as a community, that people might have the experience of those magi. People with no religious credentials, nothing to necessarily recommend them to, to faith, but somehow being invited to do so. We ask you, Jesus, to do these things in your name. And I ask you to be with us in these moments that we might worship you, that we might adore you, that we might make much of you, that we might come into the, if you like, the, uh, the same experience of those wise men. That as we see something of Jesus, we might fall down and worship you and give you of our best. Amen. Mm -hmm.